Hey folks, it's Jared. What we have for you today is our initial collaboration with the Okuska Council on Asia-Pacific Studies, or YCAPS. It's a discussion moderated by our friend John Bradford and featuring former SIMSEC President Jimmy Drennan, frequency control guest Blake Hersinger on why the U.S. needs a comprehensive maritime strategy. This episode was edited and produced by Nathan Miller. I'd like to pause here to highlight our local chapters. Whether you're in South Korea, Egypt, Singapore, France, New York, India, or the Caribbean, chances are there's a SIMSEC local chapter near you. You can find a full listing of our chapters and contact information on the website at simsec.org. So if you're interested, please reach out and get involved. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the SIMSEC Podcast Network, The Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drack, and a paw of Iron Brew Bottles wherever you download your podcasts. And with that, Kimber's Men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Good evening to you all, or good morning if you're in the United States, or good day if you're someplace else in the world. Uh, I want to welcome you to this evening's Indo-Pacific Maritime Hour, hosted by the Okoska Council on Asia-Pacific Studies, YCAPS. I'm John Bradford. I'm the YCAPS Executive Director. I'm also a Senior Fellow in Maritime Security at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies in Singapore. I'll be your moderator this evening. For those of you who aren't familiar with YCAPS, uh, we are a professional development and community building organization focused on advancing thinking and discussions of Indo-Pacific strategic issues, particularly in the communities which host U.S. bases in Japan, but also elsewhere in the world. This particular series, the Indo-Pacific Maritime Hour, is a 60-minute webinar that we do about once a month. We bring together a variety of speakers, sometimes quite famous and senior, and sometimes people that are doing some just really interesting work that may be a bit of less well-known. Tonight, we have two individuals that I would consider the leading thinkers about sea power in the United States of their generation. I think both of them are slightly younger than me, so I'll call them young but some of you might think that they're already middle-aged. We have Jimmy Drennan, who among the many things he has done is one of the founders of, of SIMSEC, and Blake Herzinger, uh, who's here with me in Singapore, wearing a variety of hats and always writing and commenting. Speaking of SIMSEC, this particular Indo-Pacific Maritime Hour, unlike other events, will be recorded. Uh, we are bringing it out in partnership with SIMSEC, uh, and eventually it'll be cut down and sliced and diced and turned into a Sea Control podcast. If you haven't listened to Sea Control podcast, I highly recommend it as a place of parallel thinking and much greater content in terms of volume than our little Maritime Hour here at YCAPS. So if you've been to a Maritime Hour before or you haven't, it doesn't really matter, but let me talk about some of the basic ground rules. After I shut up here in just a few seconds, uh, I'm going to turn it over to Blake, who's going to give some comments, uh, and then to, to Jimmy. Uh, unlike normal maritime hours, this, as I said, will be on the record. But it being on the record, I think we all need to understand that everyone here, uh, myself, Blake, uh, Jimmy, and everyone who asks a question, are doing so in their own personal capacity. Uh, they're not representing any organization that they work for or have worked with or otherwise are affiliated with. So tonight's topic is why the United States needs a real maritime strategy. And I really want to give my own thoughts on the biases that are implied in that question. But rather than doing so, uh, let me turn it over to the two individuals who wrote the question. Mr. Blake Hertzinger. Thanks very much, John. And, and thank you to YCAPS and to SIMSEC for putting this together. And thank you all for, for joining us tonight. Uh, despite my big problem. 
promises on on Twitter this evening. If you saw them, this will not be a battle royale between Jimmy and I, but more so Jimmy and I against the machine. And I think we're we're both in violent agreement on, in in uh, regards to the U.S. need for a a real strategy. And John John alluded to um, some bias implicit in that question. I think um, I'd like to address that first. So I think. Every year, or every few years at least, the United States does publish what it calls a maritime strategy. You can read those from 2020, uh, you know, advantage at sea, going back to 21st century cooperative sea power, you know, back through the decades uh, to the mid 80s. And I think what you'd find, especially in the most modern examples, is that the bias in all of our strategies leans heavily towards the defense and military component and, and unfortunately abandons even the civil maritime, let alone industry and all the rest. And so we end up with a very lopsided kind of one-eyed look at what the maritime domain consists of, what happens at sea, and what is important. And I think what we're seeing now is that a generation or more of over-reliance on a military arm has led us to let the others to wither, and they and they have. I and mean, we've unfortunately neglected uh, things like domestic shipbuilding, a domestic maritime workforce, and effective regulation in our maritime space. And we have what instead um, almost a federalized system of maritime strategies, none of which have one person at the top who's ultimately accountable for all those strategies in, in a holistic manner. And so if you look kind of top to bottom, um, just at the cabinet level in the United States government, departments of commerce, homeland security, transportation, department of defense, agriculture, energy, state and interior all own very important authorities in the maritime domain. I would love to believe, as I'm sure all of our participants would tonight, that there is someone out there who is maintaining visibility on all of these maritime do-outs and items and, and key engagements. And But unfortunately, that's just not the case. There is no one out there who has situational awareness of all these things. So what we have is, like, like I mentioned, kind of this headless federalized maritime space where everyone sort of maintains their their petty fiefdom, for lack of a better word, sometimes at the expense of others or, you know, in the most benign sense, in a, in a vacuum. And we lose out on so much cooperative energy that I think there is to gain there if we had a unified focus for all that energy and all those plans and ideas. So actually, I, I wanted to mention something that John actually led at the S. Rajaratnam School, which for any other RSIS graduates or professors or, or employees tonight, uh, I'm also a proud alum of RSIS. So John led a project that uh, was published at RSIS and via the Asian Maritime Transparency Initiative, tracing conceptualizations of maritime security. Now, that's simply one part of an overall maritime strategy. We got to dig in each person and each each representative from each country involved in the project into what our country thought about maritime security. That really led my thinking to this place where I realized how many different organizations and people and, and you know experts are involved in this problem, but writing and thinking and engaging from just every direction. And so we end up in the U.S. Uh, defense environment. We'd have uh, a term, a colloquialism called "all thrust, no vector." Plenty of energy, smart people, a lot of great work being done, but just in every direction. Um, Charlie Brown is on the line. He would refer to it as a drunk, drunken octopus. Legs everywhere, doing things, but the head doesn't probably know what's going on. Um, and, and I found that to be very true in just the maritime security domain. I think it's broadly also true, unfortunately. Uh, and every strategy we put out 
compounds that problem because we still haven't addressed it. And you'll notice in Advantage at Sea in 2020, the Department of Defense published a tri-service maritime strategy. And we didn't even think about our own civilian maritime workforce, our own military sea lift command, barely rates a mention in that report. And the United States can't fight a war at sea or anywhere else without MSC, but somehow it is not a part of our own maritime strategy. I think that problem is just visible pretty much in any direction you look. I saw John Conrad on the line. Him and Sal Mercogliano have, have done a lot of great advocacy work for our own civilian sea lift and, and maritime fleet. These are aspects that, you know, if we had a national, a real national strategy for sea power, I want to believe that we could better take advantage of the the innovation and the industrial dynamism that the United States can generate, but is simply failing to do. And there's a lot of, you know, I won't get into the Jones Act debate tonight, but I don't know if the market-driven approach, um, well, I think it's become clear that the market-driven approach has not really worked for sustaining a vibrant maritime workforce or commercial fleet. You know, the United States commercial fleet is limping, it's small, it's old. Most of its sailors are also aging. And we're just, we're failing to make this a, uh, a place where people want to work. <laughs> and we're not a commercial sea power the way that we were 50 years ago. And, and we're only getting worse without diving too far into how much should the federal government be involved in shipbuilding and nationalizing, building national shipyards, things like that. I think if you want to be a sea power in the 21st century, you do have to have the ability to, from the head of the state, generate shipbuilding and generate drive towards shipbuilding infrastructure. And if you want to be a Department of Defense that thinks that you are facing a rising threat from the People's Republic of China, you have to be able to rely on your domestic shipbuilding capability to re restore battle damage, to produce new ships, uh, which will be sunk at an incredible rate in any war against China, which has built a, a world-class Navy in the space of the last 25 years. Getting to my point, ultimately, we talked about some de you know, definitions, clarity, clarity of voice, involving industry, reaching into industry for best practices, uh, engaging better with industry to get ships built that will be used creating the type, of, the type of legislation and advocating for the type of legislation that will enable those ships to be used. Because right now, sea power doesn't have a good advocate. You know, it has many small voices, but there's not one big one. And I am fairly agnostic on whether that's a maritime department or um, simply someone who's designated as the person in charge of executing a maritime strategy. Despite a, a long career in defense, I don't necessarily think I would put that to the Department of Defense to execute because I think some of the most important parts there are market-driven. And I don't think that the military understands the market that well, which I think you can see from a, a number of failed shipbuilding programs and, uh, and struggles to engage and control costs and all the rest. So defining what we need, talking to industry, and then accountability. I think ultimately the need for strategy means someone has to drive it. There has to be someone at the end of the day who answers to the president of the United States or his representative for where the United States is in the process of supporting itself as a maritime nation and rebuilding its own maritime capacity. Right now, if you ask someone to raise their hand, you know, who owns the maritime domain? I think in the cabinet, you'd see 10 people um, who feel that they have a meaningful equity there. And unfortunately, uh, as I'm sure everyone on the call knows, you can't really command by committee, especially when there's going to be a lot of unpopular things happening. Um, unfortunately, there's a, a lot of painful decisions probably to be made in the maritime domain, costly ones. 
and just immense uh, responsibility that someone's going to have to shoulder. And I think a strategy would help align under one accountable, you know, one person accountable for the strategy. I think I'm running up against 10 minutes, and I want to hear from Jimmy and uh, and get into more of a discussion. But um, thank you again, everyone, and uh, look forward to uh, what's to come. Thanks, Blake. Uh, without a pause, straight over to you, Jimmy. All right. Thanks, John. And thank you to uh, YCAPS and to SimSec. Well, I'm, I'm no longer affiliated with SimSec as the president, although I'm certainly a member and support the organization. So I support YCAPS and uh, and Blake, thanks for the uh, your comments. Um, as you mentioned, I think we are in violent agreement. I will go through my remarks and uh, I may take a little bit longer. And if we run out of time, John, just cut me, feel free to cut me off and uh, we can save time for discussion. The question is why the U.S. needs a real national maritime strategy. And I thought it might be useful to back up and first describe why we need a national maritime strategy in the first place. Well, we're a maritime nation. I think uh, we, we've said that a lot. And, and you know, what does that mean? Well, uh, over 70% of our foreign trade flows through our nation's seaports. That's uh, uh, a value of over $1.5 trillion. Uh, it's about 18% of our GDP flows through our shipping. And the president's new national security strategy, one of the things that it says is that one of the deepest sources of power in the world for the United States is our economic strength. I think a bulk of that economic strength comes from the sea. Internally to the U.S., the the bulk of the uh, economy flows through the marine transportation system, a network of over 8,000 facilities, 25,000 navigable waterways. Around the United States, we have our uh, economic exclusion zone that spans uh, about 3.4 million square miles. That's not just an economic concern, that's also an environmental concern. We need to sustainably manage the resources uh, within the EEZ. You've got the the Arctic region, uh, where the seabed, there are estimates that it could contain uh, up to 30% of the world's undiscovered supply of natural gas, 13% of undiscovered oil. So you could see that we have significant interests in the maritime domain, uh, which is why I think people say the United States is a maritime nation. And that goes all the way back to the beginning. I mean, if you go back to just uh, after the Revolutionary War, uh, 1790, uh, Hamilton convinced uh, Congress to commission 10 cutters and establish the Revenue Marine. And that was to enforce tariffs because we needed to pay off our war debt. And certainly Hamilton understood the the uh, the risk that the U.S. that faced if they uh, lost revenue from customs evasion, smuggling, estimates that uh, annually about 700,000 pounds in goods were smuggled into the colonies annually. Uh, That's about $150 million in today's uh, dollars. So it's it's something that we've known from the beginning. The sea is the lifeblood of our economy, and we depend on it uh, for our prosperity and our security. Okay, so then the question is, why do we need a, a real maritime, uh, national maritime strategy? Well, I would say it's because for today we have at least four national maritime strategies. And I'm going to put air quotes around national and maritime. Blake mentioned the tri-service national maritime strategy, uh, 2020 uh, version titled Advantage at Sea. And to me, that's really just a naval strategy, a, a good one. Um, but it's a naval strategy. It's, it incorporates the Navy, 
the Marine Corps and the Coast Guard, signed by the, the chiefs of all three. Well, the Marine Corps, I've been told reliably many times that a Marine Corps officer is still a naval officer. And of course, we all know they're part of the Department of the Navy. The strategy does incorporate the Coast Guard, but really only in the ways that it contributes to um, the Department of Defense's mission. Like mentioned, it hardly gives mention to um, uh, Maritime Sea Lift Command or even Sea Lift in general. So I don't think of it as a, as a true maritime strategy. Uh, it does say some, some, it makes some interesting points. It kind of echoes Mahan when it says that the Navy's peacetime missions include safeguarding global commerce and extending American influence. And that naval forces will preserve a stable and secure global maritime environment that is free, open, and advances prosperity through transit, trade, and lawful pursuit of natural resources. So in fact, if you go back to Mahanian thought, Mahan believed that navies serve a primarily economic purpose. So it's interesting. So in, in the Navy, in advocating for its own diplomatic and economic value, it kind of created a conundrum for itself. If, if the mission of the Navy goes beyond national defense then how can the Department of the Navy ensure that it gets the resources it needs uh, when it competes with fun for funding with all the other military branches uh, in the department, the Department of Defense, who's responsible only for national defense? So we'll, we'll get back to that. I have some ideas and, um, and, and Blake kind of alluded to them. So the next national maritime strategy that I want to talk about is the uh, National Strategy for Maritime Security. This was developed in 2004 by Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Defense together to better coordinate federal maritime security efforts. And it really focuses on, and you can tell by the time frame, just after uh, 9-11, it focuses on preventing uh, weapons of mass destruction from entering the country, preventing attacks on the homeland. And it hasn't been updated since 2004. And, and it's, it's really in that post 9-11 global war on terrorism mindset Everything is tied back to the risk of a, of a terrorist attack on the homeland, even when it considers great power conflict. And China is not specifically mentioned. It still ties back to the risk of a, a WMD attack on the, uh, the United States. It, given the time frame when it was written, you can see why it had that flavor. But the fact that it's not been updated uh, is concerning to me. And here, I think it's worth, you know, if you allow me to go through a little bit of a, of a, a history lesson, uh, going back to how DHS kind of came to be. And if you go back to the Revenue Marine, predecessor of the Coast Guard, they were charged with enforcing tariffs. Uh, and then we had the, the Barbary Pirates and, and Congress decided, okay, we're going to need something a little different. And they, they, they uh, established the U.S. Navy and commissioned six frigates to be able to address that problem. The Revenue Marine, eventually the Revenue Cutter, Cutter Service, uh, and then eventually the Coast Guard, uh, became, you know, they're, they're a separate service. Um, they did shift over to the Navy Department in World War I and World War II. So in times of war, they shift over, but uh, they are separate. Initially, they were um, supporting the Treasury Department, but that faded over time. The U.S. Customs Service was established just the same time as the Revenue Marine, and they were uh, charged with overseeing that Cutter fleet. Uh, and then the, so the two services jointly collected and enforced the nation's tariffs but eventually, by the early 20th century, that became the, the, uh, the role of the, um, the border patrol element of the Customs Service. And then uh, the, the association with uh, you know, protecting federal revenue for the Coast Guard, that was uh, officially ended when the Coast Guard transferred to the Department of Transportation 
1967, and then after 9-11, the uh, Department of Homeland Security. And, and then and DHS obviously has a, a significant maritime border security uh, mission. But they also have in DHS, they have Customs and Border Protection that was created uh, after 9-11, and then the uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And these two organizations are, are separate under DHS. And in fact, CBP has an Air and Marine Operations Division, which is tasked with securing the nation's maritime borders. So now you've got the Coast Guard and this Air and Marine Operations part of CBP under the same department doing ostensibly the same thing, but separately. To me, that, that perpetuates this, uh, this bureaucratic fragmentation uh, that uh, Blake kind of alluded to. Okay, so that's, that's two national maritime strategies. What about the other two? Well, also in 2004, President Bush directed the Secretary of Transportation to chair the Committee on the Marine Transportation System that I mentioned earlier. And then a decade later, Congress directed DOT to develop a national maritime strategy to make the U.S. maritime industry more competitive. That strategy was finally released uh, by the, the Committee on the MTS in 2020. Uh, however, it specifically does not address issues that are outside the scope of DOT's jurisdiction. It also does not supplant the CMTS's five-year national strategy for the MTS, which was published in 2017. So now you've got one committee, the, the CMTS, which owns two parallel national maritime strategies. And so you now you've, you've got those two, plus the tri-service maritime strategy and then the national security a national strategy for maritime security. And then, you know, I think, I think it is, again, going back into history, if, if you'll allow me to, it's, it's, it's helpful to, to look at the history of our um, oversight of maritime commerce. Uh, oversight of maritime trade falls uh, between the, the Maritime Administration, which is under the Department of Transportation, and then the Independent Federal Maritime Commission. Both of these organizations uh, find their roots in the uh, 1916 uh, Shipping Board, which Congress tasked with boosting American shipping at, at, and addressing over-reliance on foreign carriers. Uh, at the time, about 10% of U.S. trade was carried in uh, U.S. flagged ships. And if you fast forward to 2010, less than 2% of American goods sailed in U.S. flagged ships. So just, just keep that in mind. And just some more statistics on uh, our, our shipping fleet. In 2018, the U.S. owned 1% of the world's container ship fleet with an average age of 20 years, compared to China and Hong Kong collectively owning 18% with an average age of 10 years. And uh, U.S. flag merchants represent 0.4% of the world fleet, uh, compared to, in 1947, 40% of the world fleet. So if you, if you look at 2004, President Bush said he wanted to make the maritime industry more competitive. And then you look at where we are, 2010. Uh, less than 2% of American goods sailed in U.S. flagships. And then where we are today, I would argue that it has not worked. Although we have a vibrant economy, our maritime industry is, is struggling to keep up with competitors, uh, namely China. What else do we have in terms of national maritime strategies? Well, there's um, a national uh, ocean council, which sets ocean policy. 2018, President Trump replaced the ocean council with the ocean policy committee focusing more on economic concerns, vice environmental, but they, they really do overlap. Environmental concerns and economic concerns, particularly in the, um, uh, in the maritime, uh, are intertwined. In 2020, the, the committee published a national strategy for mapping the, the EEZ. So that's another national strategy. And then we have a national strategy for the Arctic region, which clearly has 
maritime uh, equities and, and a separate national research policy for the Arctic. And if you, it, at least on the surface, neither of those two Arctic strategies are coordinated with the, um, the Ocean Policy Committee's strategy to map the EEZ, which, you know, obviously there are, there are common interests among those um, strategies that should be coordinated. Uh, and, I, and I haven't even mentioned the NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, and its subordinate National Marine Fisheries Service. Uh, they fall under Department of Commerce. Um, the National Maritime Intelligence Integration Office, under the uh, Director of National Intelligence, Army Corps of Engineers, the independent uh, EPA, and of course, various uh, maritime related offices within the State Department. Uh, so you can see why I'm, I'm bringing up all of these kind of bureaucratic tangles. You can really see why in 2007, the Committee on the A Thousand Ship Navy concept, they studied this, uh, this concept that was uh, brought forward by the Navy on, on global maritime partnerships. And uh, one of the things that they found was that no single agency, and I'm quoting here, no single agency or department can effectively speak for the president or the nation's maritime concerns. Responsibilities are fragmented. Authority is often exercised, but decisions are not coordinated. So the result is less than optimal. And that was in 2007. And they weren't even talking about China. That was not even in the report. So you can see where that even the U.S. Navy, with all of its resources and authorities, falls short of addressing the full range of our maritime interests. So, so there you have it. There's uh, at least four national maritime strategies, plus the, strat- the national strategy in the Arctic and the EEZ. But still, why, why does it matter if we have one? Well, I think 20 years ago, you could argue that you know, we, could, we could be asleep at the wheel and no big deal. You know, we still, we, no, number one, uh, global superpower. Uh, number one economy. And that's, that's not the reality that we live in today, namely because of China. They are growing rapidly and uh, arguments on whether or not they'll ever overtake our GDP, but certainly it is possible. So I just want to take a minute to kind of compare and contrast what, what we're doing in terms of uh, maritime strategy versus what, what we see China doing. And first, they've got the, uh, the Bridge and Road Initiative. Uh, they're, they're, they're investing in uh, ports uh, all over the world and in, in some of our in some key places uh, with uh, our trading partners even our military partners israel even in uh, germany uh, with uh, the hamburg port pakistan uh, some some very uh, key places that could really uh, affect us and not just our military operations but also commerce as well and because even if they never attempt to, you know, they, they, they have ownership of these ports. And even if they never attempt to convert them to bases, military bases, like the one they have in Djibouti, they can project power in other ways. They can use their influence to deny port access, uh, like they did in the uh, Solomon Islands uh, earlier this year, or just simply delaying um, uh, shipments and uh, uh, our logistics. And, you know, you've got economic competition for access to uh, natural resources and influence over regional governments, you know, that's, that has uh, real national security implications beyond the scope of naval operations. The Arctic component of, of Bridge and Road, the Polar Silk Road, uh, another key one, China is looking to capitalize on the Northern Sea Route, which is uh, part of the Northeast Passage along Russia's Arctic coast, and that could cut transit distance uh, to Europe by 24%. And some, some say that uh, that, that will thaw They'll fully thaw, so we'll have year-round uh, passage uh, before the Northwest Passage does, which is 
on Canada's coast that, that we would use. And then, of course, all of the different, all the various resources on the seabed in the Arctic. There's the Digital Silk Road, another infrastructure investment that China is doing, uh, investing in in 20 countries, $79 billion in projects, under undersea internet cables, uh, a navigation satellite network, an alternative to GPS that they can uh, sell to, uh, to other countries. And again, in, when you talk about IT, now you have even more influence because of the, the various things that we know China does with uh, espionage and cyber operations. In, in India, in 2020, October 2020, they had a power outage in Mumbai and it impacted two seaports and investigative groups were able to determine that it was linked to a Chinese hacking group. And they think it was in response to clashes earlier that year in the, um, oh, I'm forgetting the name of the region and the mountainous region between India and China, but they, they think it was a message to India. And so you can see how that could play out in the future as they start to gain more and more influence over this, uh, this IT infrastructure. And I'll kind of I'll quickly go over a few more aspects. There's the the nine dash line, that's an aspect of their maritime strategy, kind of closer to home for them, but clearly far exceeding the the twelve nautical mile territorial waters that UNCLOS, uh, the the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea establishes. They basically want to claim all of the South China Sea for their own territory. They've got the uh, the maritime militia, which is an element of their military, and they use that to intimidate their their neighbors kind of undermine the standards of UNCLOS. They're not usually armed ships, but they they just kind of they they get into the areas that they they shouldn't be operating uh, per UNCLOS. Uh, and you can look at the Whitsun Reef in the Philippines. Uh, that incident a couple of years ago is an example. Uh, they're just kind of trying to establish a new normal using the those uh, those ships. And then related to that, you've got their distant water fishing fleet. That's not necessarily an element of their military like the maritime militia is, but that's a a real economic uh, and environmental concern. I mean, it, it, these, this fleet, some estimates up to 17,000 vessels, which by the way, in 1985, they had 13 vessels. So they've, they've grown exponentially and they exert a massive economic and, and environmental influence. They, for example, in 2010, Mauritania signed a deal with the Chinese state-owned enterprise promising to create over 2,400 local jobs. However, uh, job Losses uh, in, in fishing totaled 13,000 in 2014 alone, partly at least caused by competition from foreign industrial vessels. So they've got this, uh, this massive growing appetite uh, for fish. There's a forecasted to, to be a, between a 6 to 18 million ton domestic shortage by 2030. And their need to go overseas to fish their distant water fishing fleet is only going to grow. And we're going to have to be able to respond to that. But we can't necessarily respond to it militarily. Most of the navies of the world, ourselves included, are, are not going to be willing to engage in armed conflict with fishing fleets, especially when they're not overtly breaking any uh, laws or international conventions. A lot of times you'll see them lined up. Uh, you can look at AIS and you can see them lined up just outside the EEZ. And then they might go dark on AIS in order to go in a little further. But they're, they're very careful about what they're doing. It's a, it's a, it's a gray zone uh, strategy. So... I see. I so much want to catch up here on my on my notes. So I think that's probably enough about China and the potential that they have to to be a real uh, economic challenge uh, and and a national security threat to us beyond just navies. You know, and because our maritime interests are not just naval. I mean, our national interests in the maritime maritime security, economic prosperity, uh, sustainable use of natural resources, 
uh, and of course, uh, freedom of the seas. So they, it goes beyond uh, naval operations. Going back to, and I'm kind of getting close to wrapping up here, uh, and going back to the, uh, the Committee on the Thousand Ship Navy, uh, they concluded that a novel and extraordinary approach is needed to break through the international barriers abroad and interagency barriers at home. So Blake kind of uh, alluded to this. One of the, um, the ideas that, that I've had and I've written about is to establish a cabinet-level maritime department with a mission of integrating applications of national power to, to foster American sea power and to protect our maritime interests. Combining all of the different organizations that we've talked about uh, under one department and then allow them to craft and develop a single national uh, maritime strategy. So, I mean, there, and you know, there's, there's precedent for establishing new departments uh, and obviously Homeland Security in the wake of 9-11, Department of Energy created by President Carter following the uh, 1973 oil crisis. Even DOD itself was created after World War II by President Truman to address uh, uh, some military dysfunction among the services. Prevailing in uh, what I would say, you know, modern maritime competition requires more than just warships. And, you know, our heritage of sea power has never been about national defense alone. Where you see China's activities at sea are, are, are integrated facets of a, of a national strategy uh, in full execution, our federal maritime entities have kind of meandered aimlessly. It, I, we do badly need a comprehensive maritime strategy. I'm just not sure that we're capable of producing such a document. You know, we have without uh, some sort of bold strokes or federal realignment, uh, I, I don't see how a nation with at least four independent national maritime strategies can maintain sea power uh, in the 21st century. And if you look at both Russia and the UK uh, this year have published uh, national maritime strategies, and they seem to get that sea power extends beyond the scope of naval operations. Now, both of those are kind of aspirational in my mind. I mean, Russia's is uh, borderline fantasy, and the, the UK probably needs to emphasize the importance of navies more than they, than they do. But I think they're on the right track in terms of addressing it holistically and not just from a, a naval perspective. So, you know, I think we need to consider in the United States that China could be purposely goading us into a, a, an arms race uh, to distract from their, their true aim of becoming a, a, the, the world's number one economy. And you know, so we build up our, our fleets and our arsenal. We focus on military readiness for a conflict that might not ever come. And we risk sitting out of this uh, strategic competition altogether. And we never really truly see China's strategy for what it is. And then we never actually develop one of our own. So with that, I'll stop and, um, and turn it over to you, John. Okay, thanks. So if I can kind of summarize, I think the primary point, although in 30 minutes, Jimmy made a lot of points, that you guys talked about were the idea that the maritime strategy or strategies or strategic documents, I think we kind of used one word to cover all of those things in the United States is problematic because it's not comprehensive and it's not enforceable. So, you know, towards the end of your presentation there, Jimmy, you talked about the idea that if you created a maritime agency or a maritime ministry, which many countries have, um, then that would put everything under one umbrella and give it a boss. So I had kind of two questions that are closely related to that point. Uh, so the first would be a simple one. I'm going to ask Blake if he agrees. But then I think the second one is the more difficult one. 
we're rearranging the deck chairs. And yes, all the maritime things go into one place. But what would you put there? Would you put the Coast Guard? Would you put the Navy? Would you put the Department of Transportation's maritime roles? And if so, okay, now we've moved all of this. We have a comprehensive maritime strategy, but we no longer have a transportation strategy. We no longer have a commerce strategy, or we no longer have a military strategy. So does it fix one problem and just create another? It's over to you first, Blake. I think that's a valid point, John. And I don't think anyone with a... Well, I would. I don't necessarily think I would trust anyone that was going to tell me that you know a federal agency was going to be necessarily the the model for efficiency and uh, you know strategic alignment because um, I think that is one of our, our greatest hallmarks is making sure the strategy is as hard to understand and execute as humanly possible. You know, if you think back to the anecdote that uh, the Soviet Army found it so difficult to deal with the American military because we had all this doctrine and we didn't follow any of it. I think it would be bureaucratically difficult to pull all of those roles from where they sit. I think there would be a lot of backstage knife fighting who would, you know, would or would not want to give up, you know, his energy going to want to get up, give up um, their equities in, in the maritime space is Homeland security going to give up uh, the coast guard and all the rest because the coast guard then works hand in hand with a lot of other DHS elements. So, yeah, I think there's a very real possibility that it creates a different problem. I, I do, this is maybe more of an emotional position, but I do feel like there needs to be a, if not maritime seat, at least a naval seat in the cabinet. I think that would be a, an effective adjustment or maybe a, a first step, uh, putting you know, the Secretary of the Navy back um, as a cabinet level position. Uh, I think there was a question earlier from um, Hadrian about Goldwater Nichols. Uh, he mentioned Stephen T. Will's book, uh, Strategy Shelf, Collapse of Coldwater Naval Strategic Planning, argues that Goldwater Nichols Act of 1986 in the Gulf War created a political environment where the Navy was pressed to shift supporting land forces in regional conflicts. Can we you know, address federalization of maritime strategy without fixing that? I would say no. I think it'd be very difficult. Uh, I think we'll always be you know, fighting this rule of thirds inside the Department of Defense. I think it would be very difficult to align all the other maritime functions um, as long as the Navy also remains kind of a lesser actor. So I guess this would really require kind of a national conversation and probably an administration that we're big believers in America as a sea power to make this happen. And I don't know exactly how we get there. Jimmy, your thoughts? I completely agree. The maritime department idea is not a panacea. It's a really, I mean, I believe in it. I, I think it could work and obviously not anytime soon. And I, and I not without reform on Goldwater Nichols. So I, I think it's more important to get the conversation started and to get people understanding how important this problem is, how important the, the sea is to our way of life. And this is just one way to do that. I would think that, uh, and, and, and I do, I do envision that the United States Navy would be moved under this department. And then if, and then follow a similar model that the Coast Guard follows where in times of uh, war or, you know, in direct support of, um, overseas contingency operations or however we want to do it because we don't, you know, it's been a long time since Congress has declared war and, uh, we kind of, we operate a little differently, but however, 
we wanted to do it, that the Navy would be in the maritime department and then shift it over to the Department of Defense for discrete time periods for specific functions or portions of the Navy, of a fleet or a task group. I think there are smart ways that you could do it. But otherwise, the Navy would be under this maritime department. And honestly, I, I would think the number one supporter of that idea would be the U.S. Navy because they would be free of the one-third, one-third, one-third tyranny of budget allocation. And they would, uh, they would pretend, potentially see uh, an increase in funding for shipbuilding or whatever prior- priorities that the uh, secretary deemed uh, most important. And the things that we're, we're just not, we're simply not going to be able to achieve under uh, DOD while we compete with Army and Air Force and Space Force for budget dollars. Mm, that's interesting. I, I mean, I, I question whether or not moving the Navy outside of the Department of Defense would really mean that it would get more money. Uh, I don't think any other agency would feel that way, but possibly. But both of you touched on Goldwater Nichols, and as Blake mentioned, it was one of the questions that came up, and, and, and I'm, I'm genuinely puzzled and interested. So this argument that you know Goldwater Nichols drives uh, a joint force, and as the joint forces have developed, the, United, the Navy has been seen as a, a supporter uh, of wars ashore. And so now I hear both of you mention, and definitely, uh, definitely, uh, Hadrian in his comments talks about the idea that that is tied directly to the nature of the legislation. So I want to ask if you guys think that, and if so, you could tell me a little more why it's tied to the legislation. Because my assumption, perhaps falsely, is that it's not so much the legislation, but it's the strategic place that the United States was from the end of the Cold War. Uh, until the last five to 10 years, where our, pri- our function, our primary focus strategically was on land wars and was on land conflicts. And so that if the strategic view of what the highest priorities in the United States government were to shift to be a maritime focused domain, then although we'll probably be stuck with a one-third, 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 uh, then the Army and the Air Force could become supporting elements of the Navy. And it's not so much a matter of the legislation, but the national priority. So I don't know. Uh, I'm I'm here to learn. So hand it back to you, Blake. Can you talk us through that question? You bet. Thanks, John. I think that's a valid critique of the position. But I guess my take on the Goldwater Nichols dilution of American sea power is that is kind of exactly your point, but maybe flipped on its head is, yeah, exactly. But in any in any alignment, we are still debating dollars and cents with other services. We're still debating requirements with other services, uh, as opposed to, I think, on a grander strategic standpoint, yes, we could have some land-focused strategic objectives, you know, in whatever next landlocked country we decide to have an adventure in, but pushing the Navy out of the cabinet, I think allows us to reorient, you know, to go too far over too much rudder and abandon some of these things that a maritime power should not, you know, okay, you want to fight wars in the Middle East for the next 20 years. Okay. But you still need to maintain a vibrant and strong merchant Marine. You still need to build ships that are modern and large and capable of uh, executing the commercial mission of the United States. You can't forget those things just because you want to fight for, in Afghanistan for 20 years. And I think that's what 
gold on our nickels has allowed us to do and we've taken full advantage of it um unfortunately to do the wrong thing and and let all these capabilities atrophy which should not have been affected by national military priority you know i i'm a i'm a firm believer as many know and many in the army rue um that you know we should cut the army pretty heavily um on a regular basis and that's partly just going to be a bad person and, and partly because I believe that as a maritime power with allies north and south protected by two oceans, we are a country that must have a strong navy at all times. We don't always need a very large army. We don't always need, you know, an enormous air force. Like I, I like the air force, but you know, we don't need an enormous standing army. And yes, it's not 1900. You know, you can't press a million people into service and hand them a rifle and send them over the trenches. It's not that military anymore. But it is a force that you can generate a bit faster than you can build ships. And if you want to be a maritime power, you have to build ships and you have to keep ships and you have to keep them going. And you can't let them be 40 years old, 50 years old. All right, Jimmy, your answer. Is it the legislation uh, or is it the national priority? You know, I'm not sure. I, I do think that the the point that, that Blake made of of Having some sort of naval voice in the cabinet is is really important. Having uh, one voice that that advocates for these priorities is is critical. You know, I think one of the things that uh, that Goldwater Nichols did was um, establish the combatant commands that we have, and the Navy is not just subject to the budget debate with the other services uh, under DoD. But it's also subject to the the demands of the combatant commanders, and the way that we have our uh, national defense strategy, it lists threats that we face, and what it's basically become is sort of a marketplace for resources uh, apportionment uh, among the combatant commands. They, the geographic combatant commands like Indo-PACOM or UCOM or CENTCOM, will say, well, these. You know, the number one threat in the NDS is in my AOR. So therefore, I need these things. And then other co-coms will say, but I've got the numbers three and four threats in, in my AOR, my area of responsibility. And they argue uh, for uh, resources. And those come from the services and uh, the Navy. And you know, we're, we're, we're pulled apart trying to support all of these global uh, uh, resource demands driven by threats. And, and we're, we're not able to uh, support our, our mission, uh, the Navy's mission that, exe- that exceeds national defense. It, it goes beyond just countering these, uh, these threats in, in these uh, overseas AORs. So we don't even get to the part where we can talk about supporting our, our, our global economy, for example. Okay. So we are thinking globally here. So I wanted to bring in a, a non-American perspective to maybe take us a little bit comparative. One of my uh, colleagues here at RSIS, Mark Sue, had a question. Mark, you want to come on, Mike? Uh, yeah, as what John says, I'm doing a master's in RSIS right now under strategic studies. And my question is, for American-based maritime strategy, how much thinking does it take into account for the U.S. to work together with other nations who have interest in the Indo-Pacific? like Japan, South Korea, Australia, or maybe some parts of Southeast Asia. I say this because I know Canada is being a late player in the Pacific game. As far as I know, we, we the Prime Minister does raise support for for like FYP, but we don't have an Indo-Pacific strategy. So I would like to know, 
I guess, how much collaboration would there be? That's all. Thanks. We'll keep going in the same order, Blake. Yeah, thanks for your question, Mark. Uh, I, I put something in the chat there, but but I'll, I'll say it for the group as well. I, I agree. Um, I, I am a strong proponent of working together with our allies and partners whenever and wherever we can, particularly in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, however, I think a national strategy has to take a fairly selfish look at American power and American capability because with very, very few exceptions, you know, we're going to have to think about how the United States gets ships, how the United States keeps its economy afloat. And that obviously means trading with our partners and allies. But I think what we're seeing, at least in my opinion, what we're seeing now in 2022 is a maybe a reversion to the mean wherein, um, you know, the, the world of the thousand ship Navy that Jimmy brought up in 2007, wherein, well, hey, we don't need to build all these ships because we got all these partners, has not actually worked out the way that we thought it would. Uh, and our Navy has gotten too small. Our merchant Marine has gotten too small. And we don't have the ability to do these things for ourselves. And when it comes down to it, you know, if it's an allies and partners approach to your economy and Canada needs that ship more than we do and they own it, guess who's going to use it? They are. Um, so we, you know, I think in the end, a lot of strategic documents are fairly selfish. Yes, they're going to look into, you know, we're going to include and consider allies and partners, and we're not going to trample over their uh, objectives and their strategic initiatives. But at the same time, we very much have to consider in a national strategy, it's, you know, U.S. national priorities above all, because it is fundamentally an American strategy. Jimmy? No, it's it's great great points and great question. You know, I, something that came to mind was the uh, the new national security strategy. Uh, it, one of the things heartening is that it it opens up the space for uh, cooperation with partners, and that it talks about two different kinds of partners. One being allies or democracies, people that we are aligned with uh, based on values, the traditional partnerships that we might think of. But then it also talks about another category, which is just basically any other country, any country that is willing to work with us toward uh, global common interests or, 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 or mutual uh, national security interests, for example, combating uh, climate change. That's just one example. But uh, illegal fishing would be another where it doesn't have to be a democracy or somebody that we are aligned with based on values. It could be uh, one of our so-called adversaries or competitors like China, Russia, Iran, it, that, that we could we could partner with anybody toward a global, toward common interests. And I think that that's helpful. Um, and, and we, sh- we can, we can use that to really make progress, uh, on some of our, our maritime interests. And then the other thing I would, I would say is that my, in my line of work, I work, um, at the United States Central Command. And, you know, one of the things that is a core tenet of our theater strategy is partnerships. And it's because we want to support the national defense strategy, which has a clear tilt toward uh, the Pacific. And that's not, it's not new. It's uh, something that's been progressing for many years now. Uh, But what we're, what we're trying to do is focus on our partnerships within our region uh, so that we can extract the United States from the center of, of these partnerships and allow our partners to work together so that we are not drawn in further into a land war in the Middle East, for example that would take away from the priorities of the national defense strategy. So I completely agree with Blake that, you know, we need to be 
somewhat selfish when it comes to our economic interests, but there are, there's a lot of common ground and we can, we can really capitalize on our partnerships to, to get there. Blake, was that a hand up? A two finger intervention? Yeah, just, just one quick one. I did want to caveat my remarks with uh, particularly to Mark that in that national strategy, of course, like Jimmy mentioned, I would expect there to be a carve out where we you know, explicitly say, what, you know, this, we're going to execute this in cooperation with our allies and partners. But Mark, in the way that we would normally execute something like a national strategy, it would fall down to like what Jim, what Jimmy was saying, like a theater plan for how we do that exactly. And that's, yeah, of course, the people who are, you know, working in the Indo-Pacific or working in the Middle East, are going to think more granularly about how these things are done with our partners and, uh, and in cooperation with them, as opposed, you know, a national strategy isn't necessarily going to go down to the the line item and like, here's how we're going to do this with, you know, Japan, here's how we're going to do it, X, Y, and Z. Like they'll get a mention, you know, if you just, if you saw with the national security strategy, you know, a few allies and partners get a, a glancing mess, uh, mention in the strategy, but in those more detailed plans, those things are fleshed out further, not in a national strategy. Yeah. So I think that shortfalling of the national strategy kind of brings me to my last question. And I want to apologize to everybody who's asked questions in the chat I haven't gone to. And there's been a really vibrant discussion, but it's a maritime hour and we're already one minute over. So I'm going to ask a final question and we're going to wrap it up. So in your discussions, both of you talk about the problem with the, uh, the reason we don't have a real maritime strategy was a lack of comprehensiveness and involvement of all partners. You were less explicit, although both of you mentioned in various different ways, the lack of resource prioritization, meaning you know, the, the point of a strategy is not just to lay out the ideal state or the goal, but it should be to marshal resources and make hard decisions where necessary to get to the end. Uh, and the conversations we've had so far have focused on undervaluing or under-resourcing the Navy. So I don't want you to talk about that. Uh, I want you to talk about the under-resourcing that's been alluded to of all the other maritime sectors. Now, I think for the most part, that we, this has happened because of the American free enterprise system. The American industry has moved out of building ships because they can be built elsewhere more cheaply. It's moved out of owning ships because it finds that it can rent them or lease them or rent space on them more cheaply. So if that's the case, uh, are you recommending a, a market intervention on strategic grounds? And exactly what that would, I mean, I don't want to be too exact, but what does that look like? Is that an incentive? Is that tariffs? Is that funding and subs subsidies? What are, what are we thinking here? How are we going to pick up the rest of the U.S. maritime sector? Uh, Blake. Sure. Super quickly. I, I think there's room for uh, maybe some thoughtful Jones Act reform. Certainly not. Um, I, I'm not an advocate of scrapping it, but I think there's a way maybe to include this as part of the Jones Act or in a, a reform of the Jones Act, which I do believe holds a important strategic purpose in the American uh, maritime space. But I think we do need to incentivize our domestic shipbuilding industry to <laughs> reconstitute itself. We have to make that affordable. We have to help train workers. And we have to, you know, I, there's there's no reason the United States can't be a powerful nation of shipbuilding and ship owning. I mean, look at Greece. I mean, for God's sake, there's a hundred Greek, Greek ship owners that own a million tons or more. And, and it's Greece. The United States can do this. We just need to create the space for uh, enterprise to do that and incentivize them. I think there will be some subsidy. 
you know, there, there probably will be some sort of terrorist regime, whether, you know, I'm not, I'm not a trade expert, but I would imagine that there would be some sort of advantage given to American shipping beyond the Jones Act. So yeah, I would, I'd advocate for a federal intervention into that space. Okay. Hey, and for all, all the uh, listeners that are, you know, hearing mention of these different countries, yes, what Jimmy said earlier, the United States owns less than 1% of the world's merchant shipping by tonnage. That's entirely true. It's also true that the United States is number four in terms of ownership by value. Uh, and what Blake was just talking about is Greece is ahead of the United States in terms of both value and tonnage, putting itself in third place, generally speaking, depending on how you're counting the numbers. Jimmy, answer your question about how do you rebuild, uh, how do you get involved with the market and rebuild the commercial sector? Uh, that is a, John, that's a, that's a, fast, a fantastic question uh, that I don't think I'm going to be able to answer. Number one, because I spent my entire career in the Navy and focused on naval operations. And I bring that up to say that I don't think that anybody in the Navy, I don't think the U.S. Navy is the right organization to answer that question, which is it, which I think is the right question. The strategic vulnerability of allowing ourselves to depend on a logistics network that is owned and operated by our competitor cannot be understated. And we are going to suffer the consequences if we continue down that road uh, in, a, in a conflict, which is not a given. Uh, I just think that we are setting ourselves up for failure uh, if we continue without some sort of reform or intervention. And uh, so I, that's why I think that there's got to be some voice that speaks, some voice that is not a U.S. Naval uh, officer, retired flag officer, somebody who can create an organization that speaks for all of our maritime interests and can, can demonstrate the vulnerabilities that we have and then start to create a roadmap toward uh, alleviating some of that. And I, 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 you know, you mentioned the Jones Act, Blake, and I'm, I'm not going to touch it, but uh, there are some, I think there are some common sense steps that could be taken. I just think we've got to find the, the people and the organization that can start to do that for us. Yeah, Jimmy, I think that's a very powerful point. I mean, you reiterated several times about an organization, and I don't disagree with you, but I think what you've just come up with in this last statement may be even more illuminating or may be a more unique, interesting observation. And that is that the United States has very few, even for a country of its size and being a maritime nation, we, the United States, in my experience, has very few truly maritime thinkers. We have a lot of naval thinkers. We have a lot of people that make a lot of money in the insurance industry and the shipping industry, but there's not really enough cross-pollinization. You know, if I look around and I see the chat, I mean, I think most of those people that understand that and are striving to cross through those silos, many of them are here. So I want to thank SimSec for being one of the glues in the organizations that sort of pulls those folks together. I think it's still pretty Navy-centric, but at least it's making an effort, just like YCAPS is trying to do uh, on a regional basis. And I wonder if as much as anything, as much as an organization that would capstone this, one of the reforms that we might look for is to promote maritime education, to develop maritime schools, which are not inside other universities and small and niche, or maybe aren't called maritime, but are really just training uh, one or two particular specialties, but real maritime colleges um, and education, both at the university and the secondary level. But now I'm taking the soapbox 
So I'm going to hand up both to both of you, just in case you had something you wanted to close off with. Please make a brief, just so we can all fit it all into the podcast. Uh, Blake and then Jimmy. Nothing else from me. Just a quick thank you. Thank you to John and, and to Ycaps and, uh, and to Simsec. And thanks to Jimmy for, uh, as always, bringing his A-game and teaching me a lot of new things. The final word is yours, Jimmy. I'll just say that I am honored to be included in this conversation. It's extremely valuable. The work that you are doing at Ycaps uh, and the work that Simsec continues to do, it's, it's great. And uh, keep pressing on. Thank you. Hey, all. Thank you very much. Um, and we'll see you next month. Uh, preview already. Uh, the next talk is going to be uh, about what Quad Coast Guards could do cooperatively together to advance the free and open Indo-Pacific. Uh, it'll be two, seri- two events, each one focusing an expert on two of the quad members. So see you then.